Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Mayor Latoya Cantrell and Governor John Bell Edwards, in response to confirmed COVID-19 cases in the state, each issued stay-at-home orders, which require that non-essential personnel remain at home until at least April 13th, 2020. I'm joined by Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which has reported 206 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Arkansas. Thank you for joining us for Episode 4 of Clear and Convincing, State of Florida versus Theodore Robert Bundy. Bundy's believed to be one of the most prolific serial killers in the history of American crime. In addition to the murders he admitted to committing in 1989 prior to his execution, he suspected in murders dating back to the 1960s. Some believe he committed his first murder at the age of 14. Tonight, in Part 2, we'll talk about Bundy's successful escape from custody in Colorado while awaiting trial for the murder of Karen Campbell and his travels to Tallahassee, Florida. We'll talk about the carnage he unleashed at the Chai Omega House, on January 15, 1978, killing Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy and severely injuring Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. This was followed by an attack on Cheryl Thomas in her apartment eight blocks from the Chai Omega sorority house and the murder on February 9, 1978 of 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach in Lake City. Finally, we'll talk about Bundy's arrest in Pensacola, Florida, his two trials, conviction, appeals, and execution on January 24th, 1989. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. It's certainly nice to be back, a little bit of normalcy, uh, you know, they expound upon your statistics as far as Arkansas goes. Unfortunately, we got a update this afternoon from the governor, and uh, unfortunately, we do have our first two confirmed COVID-related uh, deaths in the state. Uh, I know one was yeah. a 50-year-old individual. So, I mean, they say it's going to get bad this week. The Surgeon General said Monday it's going to get bad this week, and 
Unfortunately, it looks like it's starting to get that way for Arkansas. So definitely anyway, right. uh, be on the lookout, wash your hands, all that good stuff. Correct. Uh, that is um, that is exactly what we just what we need to do, and it's just spreading so fast in New Orleans. Uh, and in Orleans Parish, we have more cases than some larger jurisdictions. That's crazy. But I mean, so, then again, y'all are kind of all right there, almost. Don't want to say on top of each other, but I mean, well, you know, it's only a theory, it hasn't been proven. But the first Louisiana case uh, was a gentleman who tested positive 13 days after Fat Tuesday, <laughs> really. And this is and this is a, you know, it's it's a, a a virus that you can be exposed to it and then not have any symptoms or any idea that you are sick for 14 days. Right. And it makes sense that Fat Tuesday and Mardi Gras going on and everything, it kind of makes sense because of the amount of travel that's in the state at that time. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, um, yeah, so it is, and and due to the fact that most courts across the country, federal district courts, state courts, uh, canceled hearings, close the courthouse doors, have people working remotely, there really isn't any anything, you know, new going on with any of the cases that we've talked about over the last three seasons or the last few weeks. So right. we're on any update due to okay. uh, that situation. And until this runs its course, uh, that's probably not going to change. Now, Lisa, I can, I guess, interject a question that I'm curious about. In a case like this where the courts are closed and things like that, if you're on a deadline, does the clock stop? Like, let's say you have 90 days to uh, insert to file an appeal. Does the clock stop in this case? <clears throat> that is going to vary from state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, in Louisiana, the governor did issue an executive order that suspended all deadlines all prescription, all filings, you know, notice of appeal filings and things like that. Uh, a judge or a court in the state would have to take that step. Well, Lisa, I um, would have to ask if the court is closed, is it, and, and I mean, I'm not well, trying to a lot, say, oh, well, a lot me, of, but is it fair? A lot, of, a lot of states and a lot of jurisdictions are going to electronic filing anyway. Okay, so it'll be... So you anyway. don't need to be able to physically deliver something to the court. Ah, okay. Um, like I said, it, it's going to go jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The governor of Louisiana did do it. 
uh, to a certain point, I think um, his initial order was April 6th. But once that gets ready to expire, if we're still in this position, he'll probably, you know, issue an, another order extending his initial order. But again, it's going to it's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, court to court. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked federal, earlier. Go ahead. Federal courts have continued all trials. In the Eastern District of Louisiana, uh, but the any deadline set like for a scheduling order, discovery deadlines, um, uh, you know, deadlines for witness and exhibit lists, those are still, you know, going to remain standing unless you go to your judge and ask your judge to suspend them. Okay. So, but it's it's not a it's not a it's not a uh, like I said I, I always say this it's not a cookie cutter thing. Right. Right. It's going to vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction, state to state. In some states, it's something the governor can do, and other states, it's something the Supreme Court's got to do. Hmm. So it it's going to vary. I think for the most part, though. Um, the courts recognize that, you know, people are being encouraged to stay at home, right. to not be out and about, to not be working. And so I think they're, you know, for the most part, <clears throat> going to yeah. take that step. If they haven't done it yet, they'll do it probably within the week. I mean, just like Arkansas does not have a stay-at-home order yet. You were but I was right able, I looked for that today. They are expecting, from what all indications are pointing, that that Mr. Hutchinson is going to. But right now, he is trying to avoid doing it. Right, right. So, which I mean, um, I can understand part of why he doesn't want to do it, just for simple fact being, you're going to hear a lot of people, oh, it's martial law and all that crap. Uh, well, but in in times of public emergency, uh, your state can institute martial law. Oh, I agree. I'm just saying people don't yeah. understand and will head to Facebook. They don't understand right. what martial and, law is. And Louisiana hasn't done that. You know, the National Guard have not come in to patrol the streets and ensure that people aren't going out. Right. Um, the governor issued an order. And, you know, I don't know how that that's going to necessarily be enforced, but hopefully people have the common sense to just follow it. Well, and Lisa, seeing as how you're kind of a legal expert, what's the difference, uh, like, what is allowed in a stay-at-home order? Are you allowed to, say, go to the grocery store or something that, you know, if you need yeah. to go get food, can you do that, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. Um, okay. In fact, you know, the stay-at-home order does say that, you know, you can still go out for essential things like medication, groceries, um, food, because, you know, we're we're also being encouraged to go keep our local restaurants, you know, from, from going under by taking advantage of drive-through and, and takeout services. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, you can still you can still do those things, and we are being uh, more or less encouraged to do those things, but to keep it to essential, necessary things. Okay. It's not necessary to go to the beach. <laughs> it's not <laughs> necessary. <laughs> yeah, all the kids in Florida that that ticked me off. Speaking of which, did you see Karma got their ass and one of them did end up testing positive? No, I did not see that. I mean, I know that's shitty of me to say, but I mean, come on now, you're tempting fate. And I'm sure by the end of this, every one of them will probably end up with the case. Right. Well, but what I what I worry about more isn't necessarily the younger people, although there are some younger people who have ended up NICU on ventilators. I was about to say, yeah, that's something new since last week that, you know, last week we were thinking that kids my age and younger, even up to, I believe, the really the danger zone was like 50, 60 people were saying. And now, you know, we're seeing a spike in these kids getting really bad ill. Yeah. So we'll um, we'll have to see, like I said, we'll have to see how much common sense kicks in and people keep it to essential things. Right. You know, run to the bank drive through run to the grocery store. Um, we do need to stop hoarding toilet paper. Right. And Absolutely. we do need to stop hoarding all the fresh meat and produce and frozen food I mean it's not even fresh produce my girlfriend uh, went to the grocery store last night to shop for us and she went to go get our two week supply of vegetables for our side items and she said there were absolutely no vegetables in Walmart Mm -hmm. yeah well people are afraid that you know that that the grocery stores are going to run out but they're not because there are truckers out there keeping the supply lines truck. open. That are and, you know, they're doing a fantastic job. So people need to stop panicking and just, you know, get what you need to get yourself through the week. Right. And, and then, right. you know, leave so that everybody can get what they need. Um, a lot of grocery stores are, are letting, uh, they have a special like hour for elderly people to shop. Yes. Yes. So they can all. shop with limited social contact and they can get first dibs on the items that are being hoarded. Yes. And that's awesome. And, I'm, and being, you know, that, you know, that is, thing I'm glad to hear is all these uh, younger kids offering to go shopping for the you know the elderly you know their grandparents and et cetera et cetera yeah. that, that's something that yeah. makes me happy to hear I, I've seen a lot of posts about that on Facebook and a few on Twitter of mm-hmm. yeah neighbors you have an elderly neighbor and and some of the elderly people, because they know they get to go in early, they're offering to get toilet paper for their younger 
neighbors because by the time their younger neighbors get in, they might not be there. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had to steal a pack of toilet paper from my office. Wow. Because I, it's still toilet paper is a hard commodity to come by on the West bank of new Orleans where I live in Algiers. Right. And so I, I went into the closet because they had stocked up before all this started. And I mm-hmm. went in and grabbed myself a big pack of Cottonelle. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm taking this home because we don't have any. Wow. And when my sister went Saturday, there still wasn't toilet paper. It That's had been cleaned crazy. out by the time she got there. Then again, I mean, luckily, so. I guess we don't have a high toilet paper consumption because we – went and bought one two weeks ago and then we bought we she went last night again we haven't opened mm-hmm. the pack that we got yet but yeah uh, hopefully it yeah lasts. we're people we're not i mean it's just it's it's just the two of us right but, you know this particular time um and my my uncle said something hilarious he used to tease my aunt because she would buy in bulk from like Sam's or Costco or wherever wherever they did their bargain shopping. And uh-huh. he would tease her that, you know, we have more toilet paper than the two of us can ever use in our <laughs> lifetimes. And he teased right. her. And when all this started, he, you know, ran out of a roll and he went to get, get another pack. And he's like, oh, Tracy can't tease you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is what you've been preparing for. Right, exactly. And with my uncle, I would not be surprised if three days, five days, seven days from now, my sister and I don't get a box in the, you know, delivered by FedEx or, or by the Postal Service with a few packs of toilet paper in it. Awesome. So, because Lee has made our difficulties known to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, so this is just, we just have to use common sense, people. Absolutely. You, know, you, you can't go to movies now, because I think they closed down all the, all the movie theaters had to close down. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see a lot of the latest releases available online, but they're very expensive. <laughs> oh yeah, they're it's like well, that movie, The Hunt. The cable boxes like, too. They're going to be like twenty bucks a pop. Wait, what is that? The the uh, new releases are supposed to be getting sent to cable boxes for like on demand viewing. But like a okay, 40 yeah, hour, yeah, forty-eight-hour rentals only is like right. twenty. Right, exactly. That was I saw that, and um, that movie is like on, it's on demand, and it's on mm-hmm. Prime, but it's like nineteen ninety-nine. Yeah, absolutely. So, but um, but you know, if you want to support the movie industry, um. You know, maybe splurge, right? And to and see one of these movies that you know you would you would uh, would have gone to see in the theaters if you would have gone to see it in theaters. Because I think been- nowadays 
it would have been about it would be probably more than twenty bucks. Yeah. Unless absolutely. you go in there and get like one small drink and don't you know, don't eat any candy or popcorn or anything else. Exactly. Which is impossible to do. So, exactly. Um, all right. Well, you ready to get back to old Ted? Let's do it. All right. Um, so we're we're two. We're talking about uh, Bundy's escape from Colorado and subsequent murders in Florida. Um, just to kind of recap a little bit. Um, Ted Bundy killed multiple women in Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Idaho in 1974 and 1975. Uh, And just to give you an idea, I'm just going to read the names and the dates and their ages. January 4th, 1974, Karen Sparks, 18. Um, she survived February 1st, 1974, Linda Ann Healy, 21. Uh, she was abducted from her bed, bludgeoned, and her uh, skull and mandible were recovered on Taylor Mountain later that spring. March 12th, 1974, Donna Gail Manson, 19. She was also found on Taylor Mountain after being abducted from Evergreen State College. April 17, 1974, Susan Elaine Rancourt, 18. Um, She was also found on Taylor Mountain. She'd been abducted from Central Washington State College. May 6, Roberta Kathleen Parks, 22, disappeared from Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, she was also found on Taylor Mountain in 1975. Mm. June 11th, George Ann Hawkins, 18, was abducted from an alley at the University of Washington. She was, uh, her remains were found at the Asakwa site, which was near Lake Sammamish. And then July 14th, 1974, Janice Ott, 23 and Denise Marie Naslin, 19, were abducted about four hours apart at Lake Sammamish State Park, and they were discovered on Isakwa at the Isakwa body site. So mm-hmm. you can see the pattern here. You know, he had, a, he had a body site, and he would dump bodies there, and then he would find another site. And this is because he used to apparently visit the bodies. Hmm. Until decay. Until decay made that unpleasant. Oh. Um, And after the uh, abductions from Lake Sammamish, there was a composite sketch. There was a, a description of a Volkswagen Beetle, and there was a name Ted, which kind of turned up the heat in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So Ted goes to Utah. He decides to go to law school in Utah. Right. And after he gets to Utah, October 2nd, 1974, Nancy Wilcox, 16, was ambushed 
assaulted and strangled in Holiday, Utah. Um, her body's never been found. October 18th, 1974, Melissa Ann Smith, 17, vanished from Midvale, Utah, and her body was found nine days later. Her father was the chief of police in Midvale, Utah. Mm-hmm. October 31st, Laura Ann Aim, uh, 17, she disappeared in Lehigh, Utah. Uh, her body was discovered by hikers in American Fort Canyon. November 8th, 1974, the attempted abduction of Carol Duranch, age 18, in Murray, Utah. This was the uh, uh, a survivor who fought, who was able to keep him from getting the upper hand on her. Perhaps because she didn't quite buy his claim of being a police officer. And so she was on edge, and she was suspicious, and so she was she never quite relaxed. So when he put the handcuff on one of her arms, she freaked out and started fighting like a little wildcat. And more power to her. Lisa, I gotta ask. It seems like, and maybe I'm missing a pattern here because obviously I know. In most murders, there's an altercation and a struggle and what have you. But, like, in these serial killers, it seems like they like their victims to just give up. Like, it seems like they're not a big struggle. And if somebody struggles, you that's the person that gets away. With Ted, he actually blitzed each of the victims Mm -hmm. by striking them upside the head. And rendering them unconscious. Okay. And I believe, as as I, I recall from everything I've read about him, most of the victims, he was able to trick them into the car. Mm-hmm. I think when he got to Utah, he started using the police officer instead of the, the ruse of being injured and needing help. Okay. But like I said, with with each of these victims, he was able to blitz them before they could put up any resistance. Hmm. Probably okay. before they really even realized that things were not oh, as they seemed. Right. Or that, that something was wrong. But I think with Carol DeRanche, he went through so many different things that alerted her, her to the fact that something was wrong. He came and got her in the mall, brought her to her car, brought her back in the mall to a closed business, claiming it was a substation. While there's no signage or anything indicating that it's a substation. And then he brings her to a Volkswagen Beetle to go to the police station and, and fill out a report. And I think her hackles were a little up. Through all of that, the uh, squad cars are Volkswagen Beetles. I'm just saying. Correct, and even undercover, even when you're working undercover, you get an unmarked police type vehicle. Right like now, it would probably be a Taurus or a Malibu or a Crown Victoria. 
Right, exactly. In those days, it would have been it would have been a a patrol car that's been painted. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a an unmarked collar. So, like I said, she she was on she was on alert, and so the first time he did something worrying. She started fighting, and he wasn't able to incapacitate her. Mm-hmm. And she was able to get herself out of the car and get the attention of a, another vehicle and get into that vehicle. And thank God she didn't find people who were as bad as he was. Right, absolutely. You know, it's like that joke. You pick up a hitchhiker and says, well, what if I was a serial killer? Oh, it's impossible for two of us to be in the same car. statistically impossible for two of us to be in the same car so um, and that was you know she she had some information Um, she had the pair of handcuffs and and another thing Bundy did after each killing he would dispose of all the victim's clothing his own clothing if there was any evidence on it and most of his handcuffs weapons, anything else that he had utilized in the crime. And he literally has said he would drive along and toss things out the window as he drove. Wow. And he'd throw the clothes in one county, the body'd be in another county, his stuff would be in another county. I mean, he was very conscious of the, uh, in those days, of the distancing among different police agencies. Right, absolutely. And how they kind of kept each other arms like and he took advantage of that. Um that night or later that night on November eighth, nineteen seventy four, I believe, um Deborah Jean Kent, age seventeen, vanished after leaving a school play in Bountiful, Utah. Um her body has also only part of her body was recovered. Mm-hmm. And it was confirmed in 2015 that, that it was a patella. It was a kneecap. That's all that her family had. Uh, but it was confirmed by DNA to be to come from Deborah Kent. So, um, and then uh, 1975, January 12th, Karen Eileen Campbell, 23, Disappeared from a hotel hallway in Snowmass, Colorado. Her body was found 36 days later on a dirt road near the hotel. March 15, 1975, Julie Cunningham, 26, disappeared on her way to a tavern in Vail, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her body's never been found. April 6, Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, was abducted uh, in Grand Junction, Colorado. While bicycling to her parents' house, her body has never been found. May 6, 1975, Lynette Dawn Culver, 12, was abducted from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. Her body has never been found. And June 28, 1975, Susan Curtis, she, uh, age 15, she disappeared during a youth conference at Brigham Young University. Her body has never been found. So that's, those are the victims, um, you know, two survivors 
Well, Lisa and all those victims. I have gotten something mixed up, but I thought he told a reporter where all the bodies were buried right before he was executed. Well, that was in 1989, and and even acting on the information he gave, Mm -hmm. they still were unable to find the bodies where he claimed to have buried them or 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 left them or whatever. And a couple of them he threw into he threw into rivers. Okay. And they they were never found unless uh, unless there's a Jane Doe somewhere. Of course. Um, you know, that's a possibility that a body was found and it's in a morgue somewhere and just has not been connected. True. But, you know, for the most part, even some of the things that he said, and and you got to remember, Ted was a manipulative, game-playing son of a bitch. Oh, yes, absolutely. He was charismatic as all get out. He he could be charismatic, I think, in small doses. But a lot of people, after a short time, they started to see the evil creep in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then, of course, not long after Deborah Kent... Uh, which he took a big risk and brought her back to his apartment in Salt Lake City. Um, he was found either driving recklessly through a neighborhood or sitting idling in front of a house where two young girls lived whose parents were not home at the time at 3 o'clock in the morning. He engaged in a car chase with a police with the police officer or a highway mm-hmm. state patrol officer um, and in a Volkswagen Beetle the guy was probably driving a souped up Ford Chevy or Dodge and the Beetle yeah, was not going to get away and when he was pulled over he had uh, he had a ski mask he had pantyhose with a eyes and mouth cut out to be used as a mask. He had burglary tools. He had an ice pick. He had handcuffs. Um, interestingly enough, at Deborah Kent's abduction site by her car in Bountiful, they found a key on the ground which fit the key fit the handcuffs that they had recovered earlier that evening from Carol Durange. Hmm. Okay. So that's a fact I don't know if I mentioned it last week. Um, so he was arrested. Uh, Carol Durant identified him in a lineup. He was charged with attempted kidnapping and uh, or aggravated kidnapping because he did take her from the mall some distance away from the mall in his vehicle mm-hmm. um, against her will using a ruse. So that's kidnapping. Um, and uh, attempted assault because he had a crowbar in his hands when he was struggling with her, and he was going to hit her with a crowbar. Yeah, um, no, he was just all gone to it, actually. He he went on trial. He elected to waive a jury because of the publicity because by that point, he had become a suspect in the Seattle Ted murders. 
And so when he went out, he was released on bail and went to Seattle. The Seattle police were all over him. They had him under surveillance, which I think prevented him from killing anybody else. Um, he had already been able to kill people in Colorado because he went from Utah to Colorado. Um, I think after Carol Durant, the attempted kidnapping, he realized Utah was going to get too hot. He was convicted and sentenced to one to 15 years. When he sold his beetle while awaiting trial, police were able to get the beetle and they were able to find evidence linking not only Carol Durant, but Karen Campbell and Deborah Kent. Right. They didn't have a body for Deborah Kent, but they did have a body for Karen Campbell. So Colorado indicted him on first-degree murder charges, and he was extradited to Colorado after a brief period of um, fighting extradition. And he was transferred to Colorado to stand trial for Karen Campbell's murder. Now, interestingly enough, apparently... After his unsuccessful attempt to escape from the Utah Department of Corrections, he realized a county jail in Colorado was not going to be as secure. Because remember we talked about he was found in the yard with all these things at Utah within weeks of getting to the Department of Corrections. Um, of uh, you know passport and driver's licenses and money and maps, and he apparently picked up an escape charge at that point. So or attempted escape charge. <laughs> so, so he wanted to go to contraband. Yeah, yeah, and then his uh, his first attempt in Colorado was successful to a point because he was able to get out of the courthouse. He was able to elude police for a short period of time, but then he was recaptured. So he was returned and transferred from Pitkin County to another county. And I can't remember the name of the county right now. Mm -hmm. Um, He was awaiting trial. His, his case He'd filed a change of venue request. It had been granted not to Denver where he wanted it to go, but to Colorado Springs. Right. Which is, is you know, historically not really sympathetic to murder defendants. Um, and I, But I think in, in Ted's control manipulation He didn't get his way, and so escaping was his way of saying, okay, well, I'm not playing. Right. I'm going to take my toys. I'm going to go home. Yeah. He he seems like a guy who – Tip seems like a guy who, if he isn't getting his way, he's almost like a child, and he throws a fit. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Like, and sometimes – Go ahead. And – Sometimes he's cutting his nose off despite his face. Right. Um, so months he'd been he planned this for months. And he recorded tapes 
for an author named Stephen Michaud, who was writing a book out about Bundy at the time. Mm-hmm. And in those tapes, he said, county jail isn't as secure as Department of Corrections, so my best chance of escaping. So he knows he's going to escape. He's planning to escape. And one of the worst things, I watched something over the weekend, and there was a, a guy from the Mormon ward where Bundy had been li- been living in Salt Lake City. And Bundy told him he was going to escape right. after the first attempt didn't work. And the guy didn't take him seriously. If that man had taken Bundy seriously and reported what Bundy had said after the first escape attempt, he might not have been able to escape or it sure as maybe wouldn't have succeeded or they would have made it harder so that guy has I don't care he has blood on his hands he could have even gone to the words I don't know if he's serious but you need to keep an eye on him Yeah, and apparently the 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 cell Bundy was put into had a uh, a grate in the ceiling. I don't I don't know why, but it was relatively small, so perhaps no one thought an average man five foot ten, one hundred sixty five pounds That's could possibly right. fit through it, and he can't. But mm-hmm. when he goes on a vegan diet. And has one of his attorneys getting him vegan food, he's able to drop like 35, 40 pounds in a few weeks. Right. Bundy had obtained a floor plan. He had managed to obtain a hacksaw blade. And part of the sawing involved a light fixture. And Uh here's another place where this could have been over. Because while he was sawing on the light fixture, if he just hit one live hot wire, yeah, true. it either would have ended him there or it would have knocked him down to the cell floor. They would have figured out what he was doing and they would have moved him somewhere where he was well, I mean, not going to be able to get out. Put on their electric bill. Pardon? I said it would definitely have saved the state of Florida on their electric bill. Um, eventually, although I don't know, I don't know that they're even on like city power or county power. They probably have their own generator. Lisa, I was making a joke. Come on now. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, and and I'm sorry because sometimes my mind is so freaking literal that um, <laughs> I'm like my dad. I have to be like. Wait, no, that wouldn't that's not how it is. So right. sorry. I can I can ruin a good I can ruin a good punchline like nobody's business. So um he was also able to obtain cash from friends. He managed to get the whole cut in the ceiling. And then he explored this crawl space. He waited for the Christmas holidays when much of the staff 
and the nonviolent inmates had been furloughed. On the night of December 30th or early morning of December 31st, he went through the crawl space into the jailer's quarters. He exchanged his jail uniform for clothing from the jailer's closet, and then he walked out the front door of the jail. Of the jail. He stole a car, which broke down, so he hitchhiked a ride to Vail, took a bus to Denver, Colorado, and then boarded a plane to Chicago, Illinois, took a train to Ann Arbor, Michigan from Chicago, and on January 2nd was actually watching the Sugar Bowl or some football game where Michigan was playing and saw a ticker on the screen that said he had escaped. And I very, very vaguely remember this, of him escaping and and seeing the interviews done with different news stations, professing his innocence in the the Durant kidnapping and professing his innocence in the Colorado case. And thinking, well, if you're so innocent, then why do you why do you run away? Why do you escape? Right. You're innocent. Prove you're innocent. You know, you're a lawyer, <laughs> uh, or you want to be a lawyer, but you're only in, you've only finished two years of law school. Right. Um, in Michigan, he stole a car and traveled to Atlanta, Georgia. And then from Atlanta, Georgia, he took a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. He arrived in January and rented a room under the alias of Chris Hagen using identification, credit cards, things that he'd stolen. Because that's the other thing. Ted stole. Ted was a thief. He was a burglar or he was a thief. He didn't much care. He stole credit cards. Anything of value that he had in either of his apartments was stolen. He stole vehicles a lot. Um, He was a thief. And luckily, (laughs) um, most of those thefts actually served to help convict him. So, thank you. Um, Ted also, in case you haven't noticed, he liked universities. He liked college towns. Yeah, he definitely likes his co-eds. I did pick up on that. Yeah. And so, um, apparently, he claimed at one point that he was going to try and go on the straight and narrow. He realized this is his second chance to do things differently. And he went out to try and get a job in construction in Tallahassee and didn't have any identification. And so he couldn't get a job. Um, He claims also that he was drinking and using drugs, but I don't necessarily buy that uh, because I don't think somebody who is abusing alcohol and drugs the way he claims he was doing 
could have pulled off, could have had the presence of mind to pull these crimes off in the way that he did. Um, so I think that was his attempt later to blame something for his behavior rather than just saying, I am an evil, sick motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, it's porn or it's alcohol and drugs or it's I couldn't get a job without identification. You know, it's just it's some in some interviews he actually sort of blamed the victims because he apparently went for the vulnerable ones who looked scared of him. I mean. How dare you fucking you break. Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, on June 14th and 15th, 1978, Karen Chandler, who was a sister at the child, Chi Omega sorority house, she went to visit her family. They cooked dinner. They had dinner. They had a lovely evening. And uh, she returned to the Chi Omega house and was in her bed by midnight. This was late Saturday, early Sunday morning. Kathy Kleiner and her boyfriend attended a wedding. They too were back, or she too was back at the Chi Omega house and in her bed, which she shared a room with Karen Chandler by midnight. That night, early Sunday morning, uh, Bundy was seen at a bar near Chi Omega by another girl either an FSU student or another girl who lived in the Kyle house. Um, sometime probably around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, Bundy broke into the Kyle house. The entry, the front door was locked. The entry was through a secure door on the back of the house that had a keypad. Somehow he broke in, whether he drifted in behind somebody coming in or, you know, he watched and saw somebody put their coat in or how he did it, but he got in between 2.30 and 3 in the morning. He went to the second floor. He had a an oak club with him. And I believe, if I remember correctly, it was from somewhere on the property or from like the fireplace downstairs or, or, or somewhere. Um, but he used the club. He attacked Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. Uh, then he strangled them, sexually assaulted them. And prior to leaving the room, he bit Lisa Levy and left bite marks. Then he went to Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner's room and attacked each of them, but headlights pulling up to the house apparently alerted him or scared him, and so he left the room. At that time, around 3 o'clock, Nita Neary was coming back to the Kyle Omega house. She came in, walked to the front, and as she's approaching the front door, Bundy comes down the stairs. She sees him. She sees his profile. She sees the oak club in his hand as he goes out the front door. She 
of course, kind of doesn't believe what she just saw. She thinks maybe it's this handyman that, that works in the house. Uh, she gets the house mother, a couple of other girls from their rooms. They're trying to figure out what's going on, whether they should call the police. When Karen Chandler comes out of her room and into the hallway, and she's her head is bloodied, um, she's having a hard time walking, they immediately know something horrible has happened. They go in, they find Karen, uh, Kathy Kleiner sitting on her bed, holding her bloody head. And then they go into Margaret and Lisa's room and find them dead in their bed. So they contact police. Police are coming. Bundy goes from the Kyle Omega house about eight blocks to a basement apartment and attacks Cheryl Thomas. Beating her, sexually assaulting her. Her neighbors heard thumps and what sounded like moaning coming from her apartment. And they all had like a, a signal. If you were on a date and things weren't going, you know, too great, um, the girlfriends would call right. with an emergency for you to come, you know, deal with them so you could get out of your date. So they called her on the phone, and they heard her phone ringing, but she never answered. But apparently the ringing phone startled Bundy. Because at heart, Ted Bundy was a big wuss. Okay? Ted Bundy had little itty beady beady balls. As evidenced by the fact that 18-year-old Carol Durant kicked his ass. Right. And got away from him. So, uh, Bundy goes back to the rooming house. At one point, they're talking about what's going on, like the next, later that morning when they hear about what had happened at Kyle Omega and what happened to Cheryl Thomas. And, you know, Bundy's the only one that thinks it's like a serial killer and he's really evil and, you know, a master manipulator and genius. Everybody else thinks he's just got to be crazy. Right, okay. Um, so, uh, then... Bundy actually stays in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. Continues stealing, continues using using stolen credit cards. One evening, a Tallahassee officer spots Bundy either trying to get into a vehicle or getting out of a vehicle that turns out to be stolen, and he notices license plate that doesn't belong to the vehicle inside the vehicle. He asks Bundy what's going on, asks him for his name, and Lil Wussy Ted runs away. Hmm. Right. And apparently, I don't know exactly when this happened. I, I found different dates. But at that point is when Ted realized, and the officer doesn't pursue him. I don't know why. Um, hmm. But... Ted realizes it's getting too hot in in Tallahassee, although he's made trips to Lake City and he's made trips up to the Panhandle. But he's come back to Tallahassee, I guess, because he's got his Chris Hagen identity established or whatever. Right. So he steals a van from Florida State 
And then he goes to Jacksonville where he poses as a firefighter and attempts to abduct 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, who is outside Kmart waiting for her brother to pick her up. Damn. Um, The brother, fortunately, arrives not long after Ted gets there. And so Mm. while Ted's trying to con Leslie into the van, her brother gets there. He smells a rat. He challenges Ted. And, I mean, you know, he's driving, so he's maybe 16, 17 years old. Um, but what does Wussy do? Wussy flees when he's challenged. But the tormentors hmm. were able to follow the van and get a license plate from it. Ooh. On February 9th, um, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a quick break? Okay. And then um, pick up. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Claim Convention. We'll be more back with more after this. Champion at D-Mike as they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 5.30. Concessions will be available, and this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at sub on Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub on Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub on Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Right thing, but it must be 
And we're back. Yes, we are. All right. So uh, I also neglected to mention that Leslie and her brother are the children of the chief of detectives of uh, Jacksonville Police Office, Police Department. So maybe that's why they had the presence of mind to follow the van and get the license plate number. Uh, They reported the incident, but at that point, nothing really came of it. Um, I don't know if they recognized Bundy or or any of that uh, any of that connection was ever made until after the fact. So on February 9th, 1978, Bundy went to Lake City, Florida, which we remember from the Abraham Shakespeare case. Plant City, I'm sorry. Lake City's different. Never mind. <laughs> Lakeland and Plant City. I got Lake City confused. Darn it. All right. So uh, Kimberly Leach was 12 years old. She went to the junior high school. And apparently that morning, this is about 9 o'clock in the morning, she had left her purse in her homeroom. Another student was sent by the teacher to let her know that she'd left her purse in her homeroom. And so Kimberly got permission and left her class to go retrieve her purse. That was pretty much the last time anybody saw her. Um, I don't know how the school was set up, but she, you know, she may have been in the main building and had to go to a portable classroom. Um, She was seen carrying the purse, so she made it to the class to get her purse and then encountered Ted on her way back to her regular class. Uh, a gentleman, he's identified as a crossing guard in some materials, but was driving, and he apparently was a firefighter, saw a man and young girl at the school that morning, and he assumed at the time that the man was the father and the girl was the daughter, but he saw the man leading the girl to a white van. Later that morning, Kimberly was reported missing. Uh, Some days after that, the van was found abandoned, and there was evidence in the van that linked Kimberly to the van. Um, Then in April, Kimberly's body was found in Suwannee County Mm -hmm. in a shed. In a field, basically. Mm-hmm. On February 12th, Bundy stole a car and went to Pensacola, Florida, where on the 15th he was spotting, dri- spotted driving erratically and pulled over by Pensacola police officer David Lee. Right. Um, oh. He struggled with Officer Lee. Did you have a question? By this point, he's. In Jacksonville, and he's traveling to Pensacola, you say, correct? He went, I think he went from Lake City to, to Pensacola. 
Okay, okay, I got you. Okay. So Bundy struggled with Officer Lee. He wouldn't give Officer Lee a name. And so, of course, when you don't want to identify yourself to a police officer, they will put you in handcuffs and put you in the car and take you into the police department. I mean, that's pretty much how it's going to go for you. And um, they struggled, and Bundy was able to get away. He started running, and Officer Lee apparently fired a warning shot. And... Again, I don't know whether he, I I think it was a warning shot, if only it had not been just a warning. Um, And Bundy, of course, gave up right away and was arrested. Once he got to the station, he gave an alias. And then for several days, he was refusing to identify himself, refusing to talk to the officers. He wanted attorneys. He contacted an attorney named John Henry Brown, who had represented him while he was under investigation in Seattle and had also, I think, helped him in Utah and was helping him in Colorado, although not officially representing him. So... Does this guy, like, that's not exactly the smartest strategy. What's he say to the guy? Hey, by the way, here it is. Well, basically, John John Henry Brown basically said, look, Ted, they're going to figure out who you are sooner or later. It's probably going to be better for you if you go ahead and tell them who you are. Which Ted eventually did, and I think he wanted the attention. And from that point, everything he did was an attempt to control things. He was transferred to Leon County. He was, when he was indicted for um, the murders at Chi Omega, he, uh, well, he was a suspect in the murders at Chi Omega when he was transferred to Leon County. They hadn't indicted him yet because while they had two people who identified him as being near the sorority house and in the sorority house with the, you know, blunt object, um, that wasn't quite enough. And then they realized they had bite marks on Lisa Levy. So the sheriff of Leon County, and there was a battle of wills between Sheriff Katsaris and Ted Bundy. And Sheriff Katsaros usually came out on top. Um, When they realized they needed uh, bite mark impressions from Bundy, the sheriff figured, okay, I'm not going to let him know that that's what we need because he's just going to slam his face against the bars and break some of his teeth. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to be stuck behind the eight ball. So they transported him to the, the dental office. There was nothing to indicate why they were there. They get him up to the office. They see the chair. He sees the chair. He realizes what it is, and he starts screaming for his attorney. Uh, Kassara serves the warrant and says, you know, basically we can do this the easy way, Ted, or we can do it the hard way. It doesn't make any difference to me. 
which the hard way is putting you in the chair, holding your mouth open, and taking these impressions in a very uncomfortable way. Right. And, of course, again, Ted had no balls. Because as soon as Katsaros, as soon as Katsaros wasn't going to fold, Ted folds. And he gets in the chair and he cooperates in taking impressions. But I love it. You know, I love when Katsaros tells that story of, okay, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. It makes no difference to me. Exactly. And so, Chet, you know, Ted chooses the easy way because he was a coward. I mean, that's why he. That's why he targeted women, because he's a freaking coward. Um, so once they get the uh, bite impressions and they're recovering evidence from the van, when they arrested Ted, they were able to also, I think, link him to Kimberly and link him to the van. So he was going to be indicted on on Kimberly's murder any day now. Uh, But he was indicted for the Chi Omega murders after the bite marks. And he wanted an attorney by the name of Millard Farmer, who was licensed in Georgia, to represent him. And Farmer was willing to represent him pro bono. Mm -hmm. However, Ted didn't want to give up the Florida State Public Defender's attorney that he hmm. had requested represent him. And you can't have it both ways. You can't you can't take advantage of the state's public defender system and then bring in your own attorney, whether you're paying him or whether he's gonna do this pro bono to defend the little guy against the system. Yeah, it makes no sense. It's either or. Um and Farmer had some issues in Georgia that the judge in Leon County was not um, not inclined to allow Farmer to come in and use the same tactics that he had used in Georgia that had led him, if not to disciplinary proceedings, then to getting very close to disciplinary proceedings and being censured and found in contempt by the court. Mm-hmm. So... Now, Farmer did, and John Henry Brown did, they did try to help Bundy pro bono. They weren't officially attorneys of record, but they negotiated a plea along with his public defender counsel. And that would be a blanket plea to all the three murders and the three assaults with a life sentence, which would be about 75 years. It would save his life. Right. And initially, he agreed. Mm -hmm. But then, the morning of the plea hearing, he stands up and he says, I don't want this. My attorney is not looking out for my interests. I'm innocent. I didn't do this. I didn't have anything to do with it. And he just wants me to enter a plea because he doesn't care about me. What the hell? And 
I want to represent myself. Of course he does. So, of course, with that, the the prosecution decided to withdraw the plea offer. Because if Bundy makes these statements on the record and then pleads guilty, he's built himself a challenge to the plea down the road. Right. And the prosecutors in Leon County and whatever county Lake City's in, I, I can't remember the county right now, um, they both believe that's exactly what he was doing. He was strategically he made some smart moves and some good moves. And he challenged every bit of evidence. He tried to challenge the, you know, witnesses in both cases, Chai Omega and, and Kimberly Leach, had been <clears throat> excuse me, hypnotized to uh see if they could, could get any other you know, any other details or remember any other details that would be helpful in identifying Bundy, the case, you know, building the case or, or whatever. And he challenged that. He, during trial for the, the child mega case, he actually caught objectionable testimony or objectionable statements by the prosecutor that his attorneys missed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he did do some things that were very strategically smart, um, sound, but not all the time. And, again, that was merely his effort to to take control. Lisa, you're talking about a guy who is, you know, he knows a little bit of what he's talking about, but not all the time. You know what I'm saying? Correct. not completed law school, so he doesn't know what fully what the hell he's doing. Right. Well, I I don't I don't I don't agree that that's it. I think he did know what he was doing because, you know, while he was in Colorado and and while he was representing himself in Utah, he did do a lot of research, and he did, you know, learn. Kind of had that third year, uh, hands on experience. Right. But his need to take control and manipulate people took precedence over his ability to put his head down and keep making the strategically good choices and avoid making the bad ones. Usually the bad ones were made when his need for control took over. Um, and you know this came, this became obvious during the Kyle Mega trial. Um, the prosecution case, they had Connie Hastings who had seen Bundy at the bar. They had Nita Neary who saw Bundy in the house, leaving the house shortly before Karen, Kathy, Margaret, and Lisa Levy were found having been beaten and strangled, and some killed, and some. I mean, he really, the beatings that he administered were horrific. Yeah, absolutely. And then they had the bite mark, the bite mark evidence on Lisa Levy. But during cross-examination of some of the police witnesses, again, here's where Bundy's 
need to take control and manipulate and satisfy his own sick desires became evident and probably turned off the jury. During questioning of one of the police witnesses, he had him meticulously describing everything in Kathy and and Karen's room or Lisa and Margaret's room. And it was like he was reliving the crime. Wow. And some of the observers, the look on his face was like he was reliving the crime and relishing the crime. And if observers saw that, so did the jury. So, Lisa, my question here is, with that, you know, statements like that being made, do you think Ted knew what was going to go down? So he pretty much is like, hey, if I'm going out, I'm going to go down defending myself in a blaze of glory, and I'm going to get some enjoyment out of this. He was going to get some enjoyment out of it, but he, I think he always believed that he could manipulate and convince people of anything. Because he had probably been doing that with his family and his friends and, you know, the people in his life, all of his life. True. Like you said, he could be very charming. But I think there was a there was like a line. He could be charming, and then he got to a point where the charm became icky. True. And you just got a bad feeling about him. Absolutely. And so, you know, his strategy, he did challenge every aspect of the prosecution's case. But he should have left that to his attorneys. Had he left it to his attorneys, I think he might have fared a little bit better. Because the cases were extremely circumstantial. Hmm. Right. And, you know, for example, we know now bite mark evidence is not the be-all, end-all that it was, it, it was perceived to be back, back in the 70s and 80s. Right. Although he left very little evidence behind, but he did leave. Uh, you know, there were semen stains on Cheryl Thomas's bed. Uh, there were semen stains in Kimberly's underwear. I'm sure if somebody had gotten a DNA test, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that if the DNA isn't contaminated or degraded, that and if they have, if we even have a reference sample from Ted Bundy, um, it would it would link him to these murders. Without a doubt. Well, yeah. I mean, um, I completely agree with that statement. I, uh, I think Ted, I think that there's no uh, question that Ted did this type of stuff, and I don't think that there's... Right. I, I don't know. I, I don't think that there's any reason to even worry about that part. Right. And there are very few people to this day that, that have any doubt as to uh, Bundy's guilt and his jury, the first case was moved from Leon County down to Miami, the Kyle Mega case. 
Um, and so it was tried in Miami, and the mm-hmm. jurors came back with a verdict. After I think about three hours, they found him guilty. And then during the sentencing phase, uh, they found that he, you know, he had escaped from Colorado. He'd been convicted of a violent felony in Utah. Um, you know, he, the murders were heinous, cruel. There were multiple aggravating factors and there were really no mitigating factors because one of the issues, and it comes up during direct appeal and, and later post-conviction, is that his attorneys thought to do this, you got to be crazy. And so they thought his best bet was an insanity plea. But, but Ted that, didn't want to be perceived that, as crazy. Yeah. And um, so, and then there was also an issue raised about his competency to stand trial because of some of the manipulative and and wild things that he was doing um, or, or things that his attorney pers- uh, his attorneys painted as wild that were actually very strategic and, and some of them good strategy. Um, so you don't think that was crazy? No. He... he he was diagnosed at some point with bipolar, mm-hmm. but that's a mood disorder. Right. He wasn't psychopath. He wasn't. He wasn't hearing voices. He knew the difference between right and wrong. He just didn't give a fuck. Okay, I I, I would agree. You know, he wasn't hearing voices. He wasn't being compelled by hallucinations, oral or visual, to do these things. He wasn't seeing these women as aliens out to, you know, take over the world. And he, you know, he's the only person standing between alien domination and uh, free world. So um, it didn't go very far. And he ended up being sentenced to death. And I think it was um, in Florida at that time, a unanimous verdict wasn't required for a death sentence. In his particular case, it was unanimous. Well, yeah. um, but it was also only a recommendation to the judge. In other words, if the jury voted for life, the judge could still sentence you to death. If the jury voted for death, the judge could still sentence you to life. And so, but but the the judge uh, Judge Cowart sentenced Bundy to death, and he's one who you know who said um, that he thought he would have made a great lawyer. He would have loved to have him practice in front of him, but he went in a you know Bundy went a different way. So uh, then the Leach trial pursuant to Bundy's request, was moved to Orlando in Orange County. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, the prosecution case, there was evidence tying Kimberly to the van. I believe there was evidence tying Ted to the van. You had the parmenters, and then you had the firefighter who saw a man leading 
a girl to a white van on February 9th. Um, he did not realize what he saw. And I think when Kimberly Leach was reported missing, I think he had some guilt. So he didn't want to believe that he saw what he saw. And it was several months before he finally came to terms with it and went to police. He, too, was hypnotized to see if he could, you know, remember any details because he wasn't sure if the man he saw was Bundy. Um, He felt Bundy looked like the man he saw, but he couldn't say – he couldn't make a positive identification. Right. Um, So – uh, again, Bundy's strategy, he he did at some point relinquish representation of himself in the guilt-innocence stage and left that to an attorney. Okay. Um, perhaps there was a come-to-Jesus moment of the attorney saying, Ted, when you are questioning this witness, the look on your face, it really hurt you for the with the jury. Right. And can you imagine him questioning a police witness about the shed where Kimberly Leach's body is found and questioning him about the details? Good point. That would have that would have been and that's what he would have done. Cuz he would have wanted he would have wanted to relive it because we know from him visiting the bodies at Asakwa and Taylor Mountain, he liked reliving when he could. So, um, again, you know, they challenged every aspect of the prosecution's case, but it wasn't enough. And once again, he was convicted of Kimberly Leach's murder. And during the sentencing phase, he put a woman that he had known in Seattle who drank the Kool-Aid and believed that he was absolutely innocent. He was a victim of mistaken identity. He was a victim of a conspiracy. He was being framed. He put her on the stand. And then during his questioning of her, he had found some obscure Florida law that said, if you declare that you're married in court, it's a true marriage. So he says, Carol Boone, do you want to marry me? And she said, yes. And he said, well, I want to marry you, so we're married. And that was probably while he thought it would get sympathy from the jurors, it did not. It was yet another example of Ted's manipulation. Yeah, I mean, if anything, the best case he can think of in that case is, hey, I'm going to get, you know, myself even crazier. Correct. Well, no, no, he wasn't trying to make himself look crazy. He was trying to get sympathy. I'm married now. You don't want to do this to my wife. Right. Okay. But the jurors saw it as that freaking bastard. Right. You know, um, <clears throat> so it it didn't go over. It didn't have the intended effect. Um, and sometimes, you know, Ted, I think Ted never dealt with consequences. 
during his life because he was either able to lie or talk his way out of any trouble he got into. And he also had, he didn't take things seriously. It was yeah. just an unfortunate, you know, that unfortunate incident in, in Salt Lake City. You mean your conviction for aggravated kidnapping, Ted? Is that the unfortunate incident you're referring to? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, on direct appeal, uh, I think he contributed but did not drive the bus, which probably drove him crazy. Um, the main issues that they challenged on appeal for both Kyle Mega and Leach were the hypnosis of certain witnesses. They had sought to exclude their testimony completely, and um, that wasn't done, so they were trying to get a new trial to basically get the Florida Supreme Court to say that Witnesses who have been hypnotized are never good witnesses, can never testify. And if they do, it infects the entire trial. And, um, well, the Florida Supreme Court isn't going to make such a per se rule. Well, my thing is, you first told me about that. I was even like, wait, hypnotized? Well, but with Chai Omega, Need and Eerie, her initial statements to police were not any different than the statements she made while under hypnosis. And in Mm -hmm. fact, while she was being, at the time she was hypnotized, Bundy wasn't a suspect. The suspect was the handyman. And the hypnotist and the police were trying to get her to identify him. And ah, even under hypnosis and in a suggestibly, uh, in a presumably suggestible state, she resisted that. And the majority of her testimony is con- was consistent with statements she gave before she was ever even hypnotized. Right. And again... She was asked not to, once Bundy was arrested, she was contacted and asked not to watch any news coverage. And then police went to her home. Um, She lived, she didn't live in Florida. I think she lived in Michigan. And officers from Florida traveled to her home with a a photo lineup. And she picked Ted out of the lineup. Hmm. And then they also they also challenged the um, refusal to allow Millard Farmer to represent Bundy. Um, they challenged the uh, competency to stand trial, and the both convictions were upheld by the Florida Supreme Court. None of the claims or challenges were found to have any merit. Um, I believe at the time, Florida did not really have a state post-conviction process or procedure in place. That was something yeah. that was instituted after Bundy's conviction. So okay. after his direct appeals in each 
Chi Omega and Leach were denied or his convictions and sentences were affirmed, um, the governor of Florida set his execution dates. And they didn't play around in Florida. Like in January of 1986, as soon as that direct appeal came down, they set his execution date for March 4th. Right. Um, he was able to get a stay, I believe, from the Florida Supreme Court, and his execution date was reset for July 2nd, 1986. Mm-hmm. And then it was reset yet again, I think, after the 11th Circuit. Um, uh issued that stay and it was reset for November 18, 1986. At that point, Bundy filed a federal habeas claim. Um, and I think he had filed state post-conviction claims between July and November. And those were denied. Right. Uh, uh, and then he filed the federal habeas claims, and his initial claim was dismissed by the district court. The Fifth Circuit had been involved early on. At that point, at that time, Florida was still in the Fifth Circuit. Right. And then after Bundy's conviction, Florida was moved, and I think the Eleventh Circuit was actually created for Florida, Georgia – and a couple of other states because the fifth circuit and the fourth circuit were getting overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, as, you know, because there were so many death penalty states. So, right, absolutely. um, the 11th circuit actually stayed the November 18th date and remanded Bundy's case back to the district court to, reconsider the, the federal habeas claim. Uh, and a hearing was held on Bundy's competency to stand trial. The federal district court found that Bundy was competent to stand trial. They looked, The judge looked at the court record. He looked at Bundy's arguments in pretrial hearings during trial, during sentencing, during voir dire. He looked at letters Bundy had written. He looked at pleadings Bundy had written. And he found that Bundy was not incompetent to stand trial. That while he may have had a mood disorder, he was not acting consistently with a mood disorder. Mm-hmm. One of the things with a mood disorder, you lose any any thought to hygiene and appearance. Right. And that True. wasn't the case with Bundy. There are letters and, and recordings of Bundy talking about how, you know, he's got to look good for this and he's got to do, you know, look good for that. And he's going to get this and he's going to get that. And, you know, just, he was almost obsessed with his appearance. Right. And so, um, that went back to the 11th circuit and they basically affirmed And he filed two writs at the U.S. Supreme Court, both of which were denied. And, of course, Justice Marshall and Justice Brennan wrote their obligatory 
the death penalty is wrong in any all circumstances um, defense and would have granted the writs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that process concluded in late 1988, and so Bundy's execution date was set for January 23rd, 1989, and then um, I think corrected to January 24th, 1989. Right. So that became the day. And he filed successive state post-conviction and federal post-conviction claims, all of which were denied. Um, He filed – then he reached out to contact. During the years, he had been talking to Bob Keppel, Bill Hagemeyer, Stephen Michaud, and different authors. And – but he would never confess. And he would never admit guilt. Right. When he talked to Bob Keppel and Hagemeyer, he would talk in hypotheticals. Well, if a man of a certain mind saw a certain woman and he, he really, really shit. wanted her, this is how he might do it. He OJ'd that shit. Yeah, basically. Or I guess, and I guess so, we should say OJ Bundy because Bundy was first, but... You know, Bundy was first, exactly. Bundy was first. So then he started contacting Utah, Oregon, Washington, California, uh, Colorado, any jurisdiction that he could. And he was saying, look, I can close a lot of cases for you people. I will tell you, literally tell you where the bodies are buried. I will tell you who the victims were. And I will tell you when I committed these crimes, but it's not going to happen in a couple of weeks. This is going to take us some time to go through because this is very difficult for me. Because I haven't wanted to deal with what I've done. I see. And I haven't wanted to think about what I've done. And now I'm in a position where I have to do it. A lot of detectives referred to this as Ted's bones for time scheme. Mm-hmm. So he wanted these police agencies to go to the governor of Florida, and he had applied for clemency as well, and that didn't that didn't pan out for him. Um, yeah, he wanted them to go to the governor and get his execution date postponed, and then he would come clean to everybody about everything he'd ever done. And there were a few who wanted it, but there were others who recognized that as yet another aspect of Ted Bundy's need for control and manipulation. Ted being Ted, basically. Yeah. So he basically, they, they kind of decided, we'll talk to him. Everybody will talk to him. We'll get what we can, but none of us is going to grant him his wish. Right. Because really, he could have done this. I mean, he's convicted in Utah uh, and Florida, but he's not charged or, or no chance of even being tried in Washington State or Oregon or Colorado or any of these other places. So 
even while maintaining his innocence as to Utah, Florida, he could have made these confessions years ago. And like I said, he was talking to Bob Keppel and Bill Hagemeyer, but he wasn't admitting culpability. And so who's to say that we do give him what he wants, and then he starts talking in hypotheticals again. And as we see with so many of these victims who were never found, we don't know that what he told them was even true. And again, that's another aspect, the manipulation. Is he going to tell us the truth or is he going to feed us a line of bullshit? And with some of the known victims, yeah, you know, he's probably telling the truth. But, you know, because like they didn't have any way of identifying the bones of the sock one, the bones at Taylor Mountain. Or the limit, the, their their potential for identification was limited. I think they were able to identify Janice Ott and Denise Nasland because they were able to find blonde hair and, and black hair. Right. But I don't think they were able to do dental records because he, you know, he fractured their jaws, fractured their skulls dental records are probably not going to be reliable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think for, for dental records, you have to have upper and lower. And if you only have upper, then, you know, the, the reliability of the identification is, is diminished. Um, there was no DNA. Um, I think they did uh, they did test hairs like from Janice's brush and Denise's brush and the hair they found near the skull was consistent with Denise's hair and and Janice's hair. Right. So um, he did confess to eleven murders in Washington, eight murders in Utah three murders in Colorado, three in Florida, two in Oregon, two in Idaho, and one in California. Uh, And on the morning of January 24, 1989, Ted Bundy's head was shaved and he was taken into the execution chamber and he was strapped into the electric chair and he was executed by the state of Florida. Woo! And I heard there really was people and cheering. There were people cheering. There were people setting off fireworks. Um, there was a news story that I watched over the weekend on, I watched something on Prime or, or Netflix, a documentary, and um, I think it was on Oxygen. In defense of is what it was. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And um, when the they were told that when the the reporters at the scene at the site were told when the lights dim in the prison, you'll know the chair has been activated. 
And when the lights dimmed in the prison, people started cheering. And there were signs, burn, Bundy, burn. And there were people celebrating. It was, and, you know, I've said, his is the only one I really celebrated. Right. And he is the only killer that I really hope experienced some level for some brief time of pain. And I certainly hope that in his weeks of talking to uh, detectives, that every minute of every day was filled with fear of what will happen to him in the afterlife. And I certainly hope that in the afterlife, it's been unpleasant, to say the least. (laughs) Right. You know, like... Maybe, I don't know, getting hit in the head with a crowbar and then sexually assaulted with an object. (laughs) And then you wake up and it happens all over again and that's your life for eternity. Yeah. Um, And he's the only person, he is the only killer I have ever felt that way about. I was upset because the morning of his execution... I couldn't sleep the night before. So I stayed up all night. My husband was out of town. I wasn't in school and I wasn't working. And I was going to stay up and I was going to watch it live. When they announced it, I was going to see it as soon as it happened. About 6 o'clock in the morning, I fell asleep. Luckily, I had started the VCR, which is Mm -hmm. the video cassette recorder for those of you who weren't around for 80s technology. Hey, I know what a VCR is. <laughs> and so I recorded NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fell asleep, and I woke up about 11 o'clock, and I got up, and I got a Diet Coke, and then I went back in, in my room, and I rewound the tape, and I turned it on and started fast-forwarding until I saw Starkville which is a prison in Florida. Or Rayford, which is a prison in Florida. And mm. then I watched the report, and, and I knew when I woke up, it's like, okay, you didn't get a stay. He was executed. Um, you know, because I, the victims, some of them were my age or slightly younger, my sister's ages. You know, Kimberly Leach was two years younger than I am. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, I, I wish, you know, that's when I wish that she had raised more of a fuss. But he was pretending to be a firefighter, probably. Or pretending to be a police officer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, luckily... I was raised, even a firefighter or a police officer, they're going to get grilled. You're coming to get me for my dad? What's my daddy's name? What's his mama's name? What's my mama's name? You're going to have to answer these questions correctly or my little ass ain't going nowhere. Right. And then if they, if they try to force me, we are very loud people <laughs> in my family. 
I mean, we are very, very loud people. And I would have screamed bloody blue murder. And if he hit me with a hand and didn't knock me out, then he was going to really have a problem on his hands. And little wussy that he was, he would have probably run back to that van and left me cursing at him on the street. (laughs) Because he would not have wanted to tangle with a pissed off 14-year-old girl. Right. (laughs) Under any (laughs) circumstances. Um, Especially a pissed off fourteen year old Lisa O'Brien. That's exactly. Well, I was Lisa Williams then. Oh, sorry. So, but yeah, pissed off Lisa. No, that's not a good because you know I had these two younger sisters, and we were in that we were in that age of teachers didn't know shit, parents didn't know shit, sisters didn't know shit, nobody but us knew anything <laughs> so, but um, you know I, I just I, I feel it's just so terrible and the number of victims and they were all young and you know the girls in Oregon, Washington and even probably Utah they died because they were nice They died because they were raised to be nice. Some of them died sleeping in their beds. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, because that's, and that's the other thing. You know, he couldn't give a girl a fighting chance. He had a blitz attack her either while she was asleep or after having tricked her into getting into his shitty little Volkswagen Beetle. Right. So, um, and I just want to go over now, um, he did admit to a lot of things, but he, we don't really know to this day, the true number he hinted to Bob Keppel or Bill Hagemeyer or both that his numbers are actually in the triple digits. Damn. Um, and as I, I read all the victims from, uh, 74 and 75, 1978 in Florida, um, January 15th, Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, 21, bludgeoned and strangled as she slept in the Chi Omega sorority house at FSU, Lisa Levy, 20, bludgeoned, strangled, and sexually assaulted as she slept. Karen Chandler, bludgeoned as she slept. Kathy Kleiner, bludgeoned as she slept. And his survivors had lifelong problems as a result of the injury he inflicted on them. Um, Cheryl Thomas, 21, bludgeoned as she slept in her own bed in her own apartment. She was a dancer. And her head injuries left her partially deaf and with equilibrium problems. And then, of course, Kimberly Diane Leach, his last victim that we know of, abducted from her junior high school in Lake City, Florida, 
found in Suwannee State River Park, Suwannee River State Park, 43 miles away from Lake City in April of 1978. And then there are several possible victims. Um, Bundy was, he kind of had a code. He didn't want to admit culpability in any crimes in which it was too close to home, it was too close to his family, or the victims who were very young. Um, And it's believed his first murder was committed in Tacoma on August 31st. 1961, when Bundy was 14, Anne Marie Burr, age, vanished from her home. She was a neighbor of Bundy's. An unknown tennis shoe print was found by an overturned bench that had been used to enter the house. And due to the small size of the shoe, police believe the teenager was a, uh, the perpetrator was a teenager or youth. Uh, the Burr house was on Bundy's newspaper delivery route, and the father had seen Bundy in a ditch at a construction site on the University of Puget Sound campus the morning Anne-Marie disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, while there was some circumstantial evidence implicating Bundy, detectives were never able to close the case, and it remains unsolved. And Bundy actually repeatedly denied culpability and wrote a letter to the Burr family in 1986 denying culpability. However, again, it fits his rule. It's too close to home and a victim who is very young. And then in 19, June of 1966, two flight attendants, Lisa Wick and Lonnie Re Trumbull, who were both 20, were bludgeoned as they slept in their basement apartment in Seattle's Queen Anne Hill District, which was near a Safeway store where Bundy had worked at the time. Mm-hmm. Trumbull died, but Wick survived. Um, but again, police were never able to link that to Bundy, and that would have been, he would have been about 19 and in college at the time. Then Susan Marguerite Davis and Elizabeth Perry, both 19, were stabbed to death on May 30th, 1969, and their car was found abandoned that day on the Garden State Parkway outside Summers Point, New Jersey, near Atlantic City. Um, Bundy had attended Temple University from January through May 1969, and apparently had not moved back west until the Memorial Day weekend. Again, this is one that's never been closed. He never admitted culpability. Um, He was a strong suspect, but the case remains open. Rita Patricia Curran, a 24-year-old elementary school teacher and part-time motel maid, was murdered in her basement apartment on July 19, 1971, in Burlington, Vermont. Um, She'd been strangled, bludgeoned, and raped. She 
worked at a motel that was adjacent to the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers where Bundy was born in 1946 and where he had been visiting. Okay. So, again, um, he Bundy had told Capital that he murdered a woman in Burlington, Vermont, in J- July of 1971, but, um, again, the case has never been closed or solved. Joyce LePage, 21, was last seen July 22, 1971, at Washington State University, where she was an undergrad. Her skeleton, skeletal remains were found nine months later, wrapped in carpeting and military blankets, bound with rope in a deep ravine south of Pullman, Washington. Um, there were multiple suspects, and none, including Bundy, has ever been cleared. Uh, Rita Lorraine Jolly, 17, disappeared from Westland, Oregon on June 29, 1973. And Vicki Lynn Holler, 24, disappeared from Eugene, Oregon on August 20th, 1973. Um, these are two of the Oregon homicides that Bundy confessed to without identifying the victims. Unfortunately, the detectives were unable to obtain interview time with Bundy to confirm, and they remain classified as missing. And then Brenda Joy Baker, 14, was hitchhiking near Pulliet, Washington on May 27, 1974. Her body was found a month later in Millerspania State Park. Sandra Jean Weaver, 19, a Wisconsin native who was living in Toole, Utah, was last seen in Salt Lake City on July 1, 1974. Her nude body was found the following day near Grand Junction. Junction, Colorado. Um, their sources conflict on whether Bundy mentioned her name during his death row interviews, and her murder remains solved. Um, Melanie Suzanne Cooley, 18, disappeared April 15, 1975, leaving Needleland High School in Needleland, Colorado. Um, she was discovered by road maintenance workers two weeks later in Coal Creek Canyon. 20 miles away, and gas station receipts placed Bundy in nearby Golden, Colorado on the day she disappeared. Um, Shelly K. Robertson, 24, failed to show up for work in Golden, Colorado on July 1st, 1975. Her body was found in August, 500 feet inside a mine at Berthu Pass near Winter Park Resort by two mining students. Once again, gas station receipts in the area at the time, but there's no direct evidence of his involvement. Nancy Perry Beard, 23, disappeared from the service station where she worked in Layton, Utah, on July 4th, 1975, and she also remains uh, classified as a missing person. Bundy has specifically denied involvement in the case during his death row interviews. Debbie Smith, 17, was last seen in Salt Lake City in February 1976, shortly before the Durant trial began. Her body was found near Salt Lake International Airport on April 1st, 1976. Uh, Bundy is listed 
she's listed as a Bundy victim in some resources, but her murder remains officially unsolved. So that is um, the trail of death and destruction wrought by Ted Bundy over a four-year period. He's definitely prolific, that's for sure, Lisa. He was, definitely. And had he not been incarcerated um, in that, you know, had he been acquitted in Durant, I think he would have probably done a lot worse, a lot more. And then... Hmm. um, had he not had he been acquitted in Florida, he would probably still be killing unless he came across somebody with a gun who would use deadly force to defend herself or someone who defends a third person. Um mm. but there's a theory that um that Bundy actually went to Florida because John Henry Brown said if, you know, you want the death penalty, you go to Florida or Texas. They'll kill you there. Right. They don't play around. Mm-hmm. I was actually also surprised because he was convicted in, I believe, Chi Omega was 1980 and Leach was 1982. And he was executed within seven years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was um, – but that was – state post-conviction was not – that was a process that was instituted by the legislature after his conviction, but I think just prior to his initial execution date. Right, because okay. prisoners convicted prior to the prior to the effective date of the uh, post conviction act, which is three point eight five zero, um, were given until January first, nineteen eighty seven, to file claims, mm-hmm. regardless of their date of conviction. Okay. So, any thoughts on that? I mean, when we get into these guys that are, you know, serial killers and things like that, they're so prolific that it's honestly hard to wrap your mind around. Uh, But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's completely justified what happened to him you know you don't see you don't see the innocence project going you know after ted bundy you you you, i was thinking when we were talking about the uh the people uh celebrating you'll never see that these days usually it's a somber occasion or at least the ones that i've uh paid attention to it's 
pretty somber. People are holding candlelight vigils like it was a murder and things like that. So, I mean, definitely goes to show, you know, how many people approved of it, exactly uh, what people's thoughts were. There was no decisiveness in this case. No, only a few people. I mean, I don't don't think his mother ever believed that he was guilty until the day she died. Um, I, I think Carol Boone, who married him, she divorced him in 1986, so she may have believed he was innocent, but came to the realization that he was not. Um, they somehow managed to conceive a daughter while he was on death row in Florida. I don't know how, but... Um, That is just mind-boggling. Yeah. And, you know, she's, she's entitled to her privacy. I don't know. All I know is her name is Rose. She's in her 30s now. Um, but that's it. And, uh, like I said, she's entitled to her privacy. Absolutely. I, I hopefully she grew up without even knowing who her father was. Uh, hopefully, because she would have been, you know, she would have been a toddler when her mother divorced him. Right. So, but um, yeah. So that's. Uh, that's one thing. It's sad that, um, oh, I just got a, uh, two things actually, updates. We'll do them at the end of the show. Uh, okay. Jody Arias's murder conviction has been upheld by the Arizona Appeals Court. Outstanding. Uh, so they, they did criticize Prosecutor Juan Martinez for his bullying and self-promoting conduct during Arias's trial, but concluded that over, uh, overwhelming evidence supports the verdict. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other thing, the, uh, the necropsy results of a war emblem were released also today. Right. And, it turns out that he died from a rupture in his small intestine, hmm. which is a very rare occurrence. They found no um, disease or defect or cause. What you know, they didn't find any evidence of what could have caused it. But it was probably you know it's rare, but it was sudden and traumatic. And not survivable. And there was nothing that, you know, the staff at Old Friends or the vets who who saw War Emblem during, you know, checkups or anything of that nature might have done. They had no idea that it would even happen. Right. So, um, and I, I think it was like kind of 
on his own terms. In his pasture, where he liked, you know, where he wanted to live and be a yeah. horse. So, um, so yeah, so that is, uh, that is the, that is the updates. Okay. We finally got some updates. <laughs> yeah. I just happen to be, you know, I happen to hit home on Facebook and Jody Arias's face came up. And I was like, oh, my God, not this woman. But, yeah. So uh, I'm guessing that they will try to have the entire Court of Appeal hear the case, if that is available in Arizona. Um, And they definitely will probably... Uh, definitely seek rehearing. Absolutely. So, but for now, the uh, conviction has been upheld. It's a 29-page. Sorry about that. It's a 29-page opinion, and I turned it off, but it continues to blather on at me. So. <laughs> but um so that's it. Okay. And on day four of a good day couple. four of stay at home. Yeah. One good thing I had plenty, plenty time for research today. That's good. I feel like some of the yeah. uh Few cases are going to be some of the best researched on my end. Uh, now that I now that I'm home and I'm going to have a little bit more free time. <laughs> yeah, we'll see next week. This is the one you've been. Um, you've been. Uh, I mean, itching for. Yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely so. it. pretty excited about it. I've been waiting yeah. for this for. I think we tried last year. Yes, we did. I remember. And could not get any response from the Quintanilla families. Right. Uh, so I think I think if my girlfriend's listening, as soon as she hears what we're going to be talking about, she's probably going to make a very audible eye roll. Oh, really? Yes. Well, she's you know, a- I mean, it's a, it's an it's an interesting, it's a sad story. It's an interesting one. Um, yes. Saldivar is is an interesting. And there are so many what ifs and but fours, you know, um, to to look at. And you know, Selena again. This is a a woman who was a kind, caring woman. Um, She was very trusting, and that unfortunately cost her her life. Yes, it absolutely did, and that's as unfortunate as it gets. 
Yeah. So, but uh, of course, you know, Haley's welcome to call in next week. Oh, I'm sure she. I'm sure she'll be sitting here rolling her eyes as she always does uh, when I'm talking about Selena uh, and uh, laughing at me. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's put a bow on this one. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, March 31st, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 5. State of Texas versus Yolanda Saldivar. Selena Quintanilla Perez was a talented Tejana music star with a long career and bright future ahead of her, including starting a family with her husband, Chris. Saldivar presented herself as a fan and soon became an integral fixture in Selena's business and fan club. Within months, Abraham Quintanilla, Selena's father, received complaints about Yolanda and she was fired. In spite of Saldivar's b- betrayal, Selena, a kind and caring friend, tried to help her troubled friend. On March 31, 1995, Saldivar shot Selena during an argument at a Corpus Christi Days Inn motel, killing the young woman she claimed to love like a daughter. We'll talk about the events leading up to Selena's murder, Saldivar's history of embezzlement from other employers, the shooting, Saldivar's arrest, trial, and conviction. We'll also talk about the convicted murderer's ever-changing claims, alternately admitting responsibility and then denying guilt. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.